If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Paul's epistle to Titus, roughly in the middle of your New Testaments, Titus, will be this morning in the second chapter. Titus chapter 2, we'll read together verses 11 through 14. I love that last song because uh, it conveys so clearly one of the most fundamental and important truths in all the world, and that is that sinners can come to Jesus. You come with nothing but your sin and a recognition of your need, and I hope that everyone here takes that message to heart. Please follow along as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We arrive this morning to what one commentator has referred to as the rhetorical climax of Paul's epistle to Titus. Uh, For those of us who have been with us in this series of sermons, I'll remind you of where we've been so far. Paul writes this letter to, uh, what shall we call Titus? Paul's uh, deputy, Paul's partner, uh, Paul's co-laborer. And he sends Titus to minister to the churches in Crete, small island in the Mediterranean. And Titus' mission is to complete that which has been left unfinished or undone or incomplete in Paul's own ministry. And the core of that work is, first of all, to appoint elders in every town, as Paul had directed Titus, and we have in verses 5 through 9, listed the qualifications for the types of men who should be given that sort of authority in the life of the church. Uh, But more than that, Titus was also to address and rebuke and indeed silence uh, a group of false teachers who were harassing the church in Crete. And then Titus is told, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, that that he's to be different from these false teachers. He's to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And indeed, the rest of the book, chapters 2 and 3, essentially lay out what it is that Titus is to teach. We've considered in the last two messages Uh, verses 1 through 10, which outlines for us Paul's instructions concerning Christian ethics. Uh, That is how God's people ought to live, and particularly how these Cretan Christians ought to live in their particular context there in Crete. And Paul particularizes his instructions to particular groups in the life of the church. So he addresses certain instructions to older men, certain instructions to younger men, And we considered last week the instructions Paul gave to the older women there in Crete and and through the older women to the younger women gathered there in those churches. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul calls bondservants to be submissive to their own masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." Now, we know, of course, Paul is in no wise justifying chattel slavery, and his instructions here should not be seen as tacit acceptance of slavery as an institution, 
Rather, Paul is simply giving instructions to those in the Cretan culture who through one way or another have found themselves as bondservants, either through a form of indentured servitude, which would have been quite common in those days, uh, or perhaps uh, those who were in that institution involuntarily. Uh, Here in this passage, as in a few other passages in the New Testament, Paul is not concerned uh, to address that current social system and to talk to these bondservants about pursuing emancipation. Paul is simply addressing how to live in an institution that was part of the fabric of society in those days. And so he's essentially saying to bondservants, if you find yourself in this station voluntarily or involuntarily, here's how you can live so as to please God. He's just not dealing in this place with how to pursue changes to the system or changes to social structures, but his point is this, if you find yourself in this station in life, if you find yourself a bondservant, voluntarily or involuntarily, the Christian faith has resources for how you can live in that station so as to honor and please God. Uh, it's not unlike Paul's view of Christian submission to government. Uh, Paul can give instructions to Christians in how they ought to live under oppressive governments, and one of the things Paul encourages Christians to do in such situations is to cheerfully submit to and honor the government. Uh, but of course, we'd never conclude, would we, uh, that uh, Paul was an advocate for oppression. Uh, or persecution from the government, and yet he sees within the Christian faith resources for Christians who find themselves in such a place, and I think we have a similar sort of, uh, similar sort of instructions from Paul here to bondservants. Uh, what is certainly more significant, though, that we should see in those two verses, verses 9 and 10, is that there were bondservants in the church that they too had been given the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had come to faith to believe upon the Lord, and thus the gospel was for them as well as anybody else. And more than that, the Christian life was to be lived in accord with the gospel. They were included into the community of faith and were seen as part of the body of Christ. The gospel was for these bondservants, and therefore the Christian life was for them. So that's verses 1 through 10. Paul's instructions for how Christians ought to live so as to honor God with their lives. But after looking through these verses, the question might arise, why should Christians live in this way? Why should Christians be concerned about the subject of ethics? What's the purpose of living like this? Why pursue godliness in our day-to-day lives, in our conduct, in our speech, and in our thoughts? Why is this such an important issue for Christians to observe, and this might give rise to a second question, and that is uh, how. How is it that Christians are to live this way? How are they to, to uh, pursue these sorts of virtues that the Apostle Paul is holding out to those Christians in Crete? How are they to live in this way that Paul is calling them to live? Now, Paul answers these two questions, that is why and how, in verses 11 through 14 the verses we just read a moment ago. Titus is a little unusual. It's normally Paul's pattern to give sort of the the indicative, the doctrine, and then to give the imperatives, the ethics. He does that in Romans. He does that in Ephesians. He does that in Colossians, to some degree in Philippians as well. But here he gives the imperatives. This is how you're to live. And then it's when we get to verse 11 that he grounds it in sound doctrine and indeed grounds it in the grace of God. 
You cannot understand the Christian ethics of verses 1 through 10 without understanding the Christian doctrines of verses 11 through 14, particularly what these verses have to say about grace. And that is indeed what these verses are all about. We learn that grace is both the basis and the motive for Christian ethics, for Christian living. Grace is the foundation, the motivation, the incentive, the encouragement, the grounds of all our sanctification and godliness of life. And there's a wealth of rich doctrine packed into these four verses. Um, I've decided I need to take at least two weeks uh, in these verses. I'm saying at least two weeks. It could be more than that. Uh, I had a pastor growing up who spent 13 weeks in these uh, four verses. He may or may not be sitting here among us, by the way, this morning. (laughs) I say that uh, only to say uh, some of the most glorious and foundational truths in the Christian life are contained in these verses. And so, I don't want us to miss what Paul has to say here. It appears Paul's main burden is to explain how the grace of God that saves also trains believers in how to live godly lives. Christian, God is interested in how you live your life. And He has given us grace not so that we could be casual about holiness or slide into moral laxity, but rather He gives us His grace as a power at work in us to train us in how to say no to sin and to live uprightly before God. And that will be the burden, God willing, of next week's message. But today, I just want us to look at verse 11. Let's read it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul makes this incredible statement in verse 11, but it's almost like, I mean, I don't know how you sense the flow of the passage. It's almost like he states this on his way to making another point. It seems he wants to talk about how the grace of God not only saves, but trains us. That's his big point. But I don't think we could pass this verse up so quickly. Uh, There are certain texts in the Bible that could be called epitome texts. Those are texts that in very short compass, with very concise and muscular language, capture some of the most foundational truths in the Bible and in the Christian faith. They're sort of like standalone texts. They sort of rise even above and out of their context. And we should never read such texts out of their context, but I just mean that to say they sort of, sort of jump out at you. They lay hold of you in a way that is altogether unique. And I think we have one such text here in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, I don't really have any headings this morning for those of you who are taking notes. I know that's somewhat rare. Uh, But um, I just have, I guess, one heading. What does verse 11 teach us? Let's consider it together. In Greek, the first word is the verb in this sentence. Uh, That's the first word. It is the Greek word epiphane. And it is in the position of emphasis. Paul says the grace of God has appeared. Appeared, that verb is the first word in the sentence in the Greek. The word for appeared is the Greek word from which we get our English word epiphany. The word epiphany. Uh, Children, I wonder, do you know that word epiphany? Do you know what that word uh, means? Uh, An epiphany is like a, a sudden and striking realization or a a revelation that comes to you like a lightning bolt. 
In fact, that word epiphany in Greek is often associated with light. It's like a light bulb goes off. You just you see something and, and understand something and appreciate something with this, this new clarity that just sort of comes to you uh, as an epiphany. Uh, so we have small children in my house right now. Small children, it's fun to observe them and their fascination, their growing fascination with cause and effect. Like they realize, okay, if I do this, that happens. Sometimes that plays into discipline, but I'm not talking about that. Uh, we got my son a little like clock that goes off in the morning. It doesn't make a sound, but it turns green at a certain time in the morning. And the purpose of this clock is to alert our son for when he's allowed to get out of his bed in the morning. And so he has a big boy bed, and he'll get up at 5.30, 6 in the morning if he had his way. So we got him this clock, and I'm training him that when the light turns green, which is usually at 7 o'clock, he's allowed to get up and come out and do his whole routine. Well, you could imagine the first 10 times we did this, it was totally lost on him. But I can remember the moment when it, it was like an epiphany to him. He realized the connection between his sleep habits, the bed, the green light, and mom and dad being okay with him coming outside. He kind of looked at the light, he looked at us and looked at the light, and it's like he got it. It's like it was an epiphany, like a revelation to my son. That's how epiphanies work. When the word is employed in this verse, the emphasis is on the sudden and striking and even surprising nature of this appearance, this revelation of the grace of God. It's climactic, it's striking, it's dramatic, it's definitive and conclusive. Now, what, what is Paul referring to? That, that's epiphany, that's appearance. What is he saying has appeared? What does he mean when he says the grace of God has appeared, has been revealed like an epiphany? Well, he's of course referring to the coming of the Son of God in history to save His people from their sins. Uh, the historical events of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the story of the revelation, the appearance, the epiphany of the grace of God. And, and the idea of the coming of Jesus as an epiphany, a sudden appearing, a sudden revelation, it's a very common idea in the Scriptures. Uh, ten times that word epiphane is used with reference to the coming of Christ, four times with reference to His first coming, six times with reference to His second coming. The coming of Jesus is said to be an epiphany, an appearance, a revelation. The coming of Jesus into the world signifies the coming of the grace of God in the most striking fashion. Now, do you remember, I know it's been a, a while now, maybe 18 months or a couple of years ago, when we started our series in the Gospel of John, uh, those of us who were with the church then, do you remember the prologue of John's Gospel? It's one of the most unusual passages in all the Bible. Uh, it's like a, a foyer to the rest of the Gospel. The major themes are set out. When you get through the prologue, you feel like you've almost been in a dream or something like that. It's quite an extraordinary passage. Do you remember how that passage starts? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness like an epiphany. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it striking opening to that gospel. But, but then we get to the climax of the prologue, 
in verse 14, where we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son sent from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. We've seen the appearance. We've seen the coming of the Son of God into the world, and it was like this this light that shined into darkness, and and when we beheld His glory, we beheld the glory of the only Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he said just a couple of verses later, uh, from Him we have all received grace upon grace. The coming of the Lord Jesus was the coming, the appearing of the grace of God in dramatic and striking fashion, and so it's no wonder that in describing the coming of Christ, Paul would say that the grace of God has appeared. Now, it's important that we appreciate the word Paul uses to capture and summarize the coming of Christ along with his life and work. He calls it the grace of God. That's how he summarizes the coming of Christ. It's the coming of grace. Now, again, children, we've talked about this before. Again, if you've been with us for any length of time, we've talked about grace before, haven't we? Do you know what grace is? The simplest definition of grace I know how to give is unearned favor or unmerited favor. What is grace? It is the unearned favor of God. So imagine, kids, that you come 20 minutes early on a Sunday morning, and I grab you and I say, look, I have a job for you. Uh, can you take a stack of bulletins and stand at the back of the sanctuary and pass these out to people as they come in? And I'll tell you what, uh, if you do that, I'll give you $10. Some of you are thinking, that sounds pretty good. Um, you want that job. Uh, and then imagine that you, you did this, you pass out the bulletins faithfully, dutifully. Then after the service, say, Pastor Alex, I did my job, I'm going to pay up, and I give you the $10, and you go on your way. Now, would that be an instance or an expression of grace? No, right? That's not how grace works. That's, you did the job, you earned it, you earned the $10, I gave you the $10, you got what you deserved. But then you might imagine a different scenario, kids, that that maybe one Sunday, we maybe haven't spoken in a couple of months, you come into church, and out of nowhere I come to you and I give you a present. Whatever the, the, the thing is, the toy, the book, the whatever that you want most, I give that to you. Here's a box of Legos, or here's board game that you've been wanting or something like that. Just out of the blue, you didn't do anything to earn it. That would be an expression of grace, unearned favor. And it's that word that Paul uses to describe the coming of Jesus Christ. It is an expression of the grace of God. It's an expression of favor and goodness and kindness that's unearned. And more than that, It's grace and favor and goodness that is given in spite of what we've actually earned and deserved. Because the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners and that as sinners we deserve the judgment of God. And yet God in His goodness and His kindness and His grace, His unearned favor, sends His Son into the world to save sinners from their sins and from judgment. That's what's going on in this appearing of the grace of God, God's unearned favor coming to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to make an important qualification here. Uh, It's not as though God was not gracious before the coming of Christ. 
So, so she, we, we, we shouldn't think, well, the Old Testament was all law. God dealt with his people in a very different way back then. But then God decided to be gracious, and he sent his son. And that's when all the grace started. That's not true at all. God has ever been, as I think it's Peter calls him, the God of all grace. God has been gracious in ages past. God's grace came to expression in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned so flagrantly and had rebelled against God, what does God promise? That He's going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. God's going to bring about some sort of redemption. And indeed, though the serpent will bruise his heel, he will crush the serpent's head. That was an expression of God's grace. God's grace was shown in the land of Haran, uh, where, where there's this man, Abram, who's an idol worshiper. He's not deserved anything but the judgment of God, and God comes to him, appears to him, reveals his grace to him, and tells him that he's going to give him land, he's going to give him a name, make him a nation, and through his seed, all the late nations of the world will be blessed. It's an expression of God's grace. God was gracious in the land of Goshen in Egypt when He came to the Israelites and through the provision of the blood of a lamb spared them from the wrath of the angel of death and brought them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Yes, God had been gracious in times past. So let me ask this question. In what way can Christ be said to represent the appearance, the revelation, the epiphany of the grace of God. And it is this. It's not that God was gracious for the first time in Christ. Rather, it's that Christ reveals that grace most compellingly, most surprisingly, and most convincingly through His incarnation, His life, His death, and His resurrection. Christ is the fullest and most climactic revelation of the grace of God bringing salvation for all people. In Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the grace of God has appeared, and it has done so most strikingly, most compellingly, most convincingly. The grace of God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. I appreciate what Charles Spurgeon says in preaching on this text. Spurgeon writes, in the person of Christ the grace of God is revealed, as when the sun rises and makes all lands glad. It is not a private vision of God to a favored prophet on the lone mountain's brow, but is an open declaration of the grace of God to every creature under heaven, a display of the grace of God to all eyes that are open to behold it. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to Bethlehem and when He closed a perfect life by death upon Calvary, Calvary, He manifested the grace of God more gloriously than has been done by creation or providence. This is the clearest revelation of the everlasting mercy of the living God. The grace of God has been made manifest to the entire universe in the appearing of Jesus Christ our Lord. The coming of Jesus Christ was not a reflex of judgment. It's a reflex of grace, of unearned favor. We read that in John 3, 17. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. God sent His Son so that the world through Him might be saved. So what is Paul referring to in Titus 2, 11 when he says the grace of God has appeared? He's referring to nothing less than the gospel the coming of Christ into the world as the supreme expression of God's grace toward man. 
Okay, now, now how is, is this grace, the appearing of the grace of God, how is it described in this verse? The grace of God has appeared. It says, bringing salvation for all men. Now, those of you who know your English grammar, that appears like a participle. It's actually not a participle. That, that phrase is an adjective, modifying grace. So, so what kind of grace was this? How is it described? What, what characterizes this grace? It is best translated, the grace of God that brings salvation for all people has appeared. It's the grace that with it brings salvation to all people. Now, what does that mean to say the grace of God brings salvation to all people? Well, first, let me say what it does not mean. The meaning of this verse is not that everyone will be saved. The sad fact is the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, and in rebellion and sin, millions have rejected the grace of God. And still millions to this day are lost in darkness, though the grace of God is available to them. So this verse does not advocate for, for universalism, if you know what that is. But, but what does this verse mean positively? What does it mean that the grace of God brings salvation for all people? It means that salvation in Christ is offered to all without exception or distinction. In Christ, salvation is offered to all without exception or distinction. The grace of God has appeared, and it comes with this glorious offer of salvation for all people. No one's excluded. The offer of the gospel, the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ is provided for everyone. And, and if we connect this phrase contextually to the first ten verses of chapter two, what do we learn? That this grace brings salvation for both men and women, for young and old, and for both slave and free. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not targeted to a niche group. There's nothing niche about the gospel. It is for all people. Jesus is not like a you know, politician who's polling really well among white, blue-collar men in northern Montana who are left-handed and were born in April. There's nothing niche about the gospel. The gospel has never ceased to be relevant in any culture or climate throughout the world. It has never gone out of style. It has penetrated every type of culture, every type of demographic, because the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. The gospel is not targeted to a niche group. There's nothing classist about the gospel. It is for everyone, for the rich and poor, for the young and old, for the educated and uneducated, for people of all kinds of backgrounds, ethnicities, and experiences. And I just want to emphasize this because I think this will enhance both our evangelism and our sense of the greatness of the grace of God. There's nothing Western European about the gospel. There's nothing middle class about the gospel. There's nothing about the pure and simple gospel that requires you to have a couple of degrees in order to appreciate it. The gospel levels all and indeed raises all. The gospel tells us that we are all sinners, lost in our sin, consigned for death and judgment, but through what God has done in Christ, Salvation is available to all, for all those who come in repentance and faith. There's nothing niche about the gospel.
It is for every soul under heaven. Now, of course, in Paul's writings, if you read your New Testaments carefully, Paul's writings, one of the big ideas that he talks about again and again and again is something that's probably harder for us to appreciate 2,000 years on. What Paul seems to be most captivated by, most excited about in his writings when he talks about how the gospel goes to all people is the fact that the gospel, the grace of God, the favor of God is no longer given to those who simply observe the old covenant. But now the gospel, the grace of God, the good news, the favor of God is given to the Gentiles, uh, to the nations. You ever wonder why Paul talks about circumcision so much? I looked at this week, those words used for circumcision, uncircumcision, the various forms, are used almost exactly as much as the word gospel in the New Testament. You ever wonder why Paul's talking about this so much? Because the big idea for him is one reared in Judaism who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, who was taught that the grace of God and the favor of God is only available to the Jewish people. Well, here's the big idea. In Jesus Christ, this thing is busted wide open. And all the nations of the world are now included into the redemptive purposes and plans of God. See, it wasn't that way in the Old Covenant. If you wanted access to God, you had to go through the Mosaic Law. You had to go through the temple. You had to go through the various rites and rituals. You weren't saved by those rituals, but nonetheless, you had to bring your life into conformity to those rituals. But one of the things Paul wants to show us in the New Covenant is that redemption comes to all, all the peoples of the world. And perhaps they really needed to hear this in this Cretan context. Do you remember what was said of those false teachers that Titus is supposed to silence and rebuke? It says, many of them were of the circumcision party. They devoted themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that some of these false teachers were trying to press the people into conformity to the Old Covenant. But Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He needs to silence those bullies, and he needs to teach the church there that the grace of God has appeared, and it brings with it salvation for all people. Not Jews only, but the nations of the world. Paul, writing to Gentiles in Ephesians 2, says this in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you ethne in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, nuni day, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see what Paul's saying? At one time, it doesn't mean like one time in their upbringing. He means at one time in redemptive history. You were strangers to the covenants, to the commonwealth of Israel. You knew nothing of the grace of God. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, there's been a turning of the page in redemptive history. Now the nations are brought in. The grace of God has appeared for all the peoples of the world. Paul here is saying you don't have to become a Jew to be a recipient of the grace of God. The grace of God brings salvation for all people. People of all nationalities and ethnicities, people who are circumcised and uncircumcised, people who grew up with the Scriptures and people who are hearing the Scriptures for the first time. The grace of God brings salvation for all people. All people come 
into the sphere of the gospel offer. All people are invited to partake of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. No one is excluded from this offer. Now listen to me. All people, verse 11, means all people. There's no subtlety in the Greek. The phrase is pasin anthropois. Pasin means all, every. Anthropois means people or or mankind or or men, all people, all men. It's no secret that I'm a Calvinist, and and my Reformed credentials are unimpeachable. I grew up in a church that held to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. I knew Tulip by the time I was 10 years old. I taught Sunday school in a room named after Charles Spurgeon. We called it the Spurgeon Room. So listen to me. If, If someone comes to you and he says he's reformed in his theology and he believes that his theology requires him to do some sort of hermeneutical jujitsu on the word all to try to persuade you that it really doesn't mean all, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He may need to spend less time preaching and more time studying his Bible. The word all here means all. The gospel is offered to all. And you know what? It was people who were persuaded of the unconditional sovereign election of God and definite atonement who started the modern missions movement. It was William Carey and his buddies, a bunch of Calvinists, who believed the grace of God had appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And Jimmy Gann and Laura Gann, good Reformed brothers and sisters, staying in our guest house now, our missionaries in India, carry on that tradition of people who are passionate about the sovereign grace of God and recognize that there's nothing in that sovereign grace that excludes the gospel being offered to all the peoples of the world. All means all. People of all nations, backgrounds, experiences, people of all kinds of personality types, people whose lives are marked by all kinds of sins, all kinds of baggage. No one is disqualified from receiving God's grace in Christ. All you need to bring to Him are your sins and a recognition of your desperate need of a Savior. There's no one in this room who cannot be saved. There's no one too sinful, no one who's gone too far. There's an old song. I don't think we sing it very often. It's got a line that says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to know your need of Him. Or a more well-known song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress, helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. There might be someone here who would say, Pastor, that's wonderful, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've given myself to. You don't know what I'm enslaved to. You just don't know, and if you knew, you would recognize the grace of God can't reach me. Jesus said to them, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Paul said in Romans 5, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. A couple of verses on, he says, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul writes to his, his other boy, 1 Timothy 1, this is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, thank you very much. Paul adds, of whom I am chief. Listen, I wish I could sit you down, we could sit you down and tell you our stories. There's a vile people in this room this morning. We have sinned against God in flagrant and egregious ways. We have sinned against our neighbor in flagrant and egregious ways. And we want to testify to you, the grace of God has come to us. We have experienced the vindication of this passage. The grace of God has appeared and it's brought salvation even to me. Surely the grace of God can reach you as well. I want to close with three brief implications for us. Three implications, three ways we can apply this verse. Number one, this verse should enlarge our sense of the greatness of the grace of God. This verse, Titus 2.11, should enlarge our sense of the greatness of the grace of God. That the grace of God could embrace so many people. You realize there's nations all over the world, people groups all over the world. You could go and visit today in Kenya and in Himishal and in northern Iraq and in China and in Papua New Guinea and in Turkey. You walk in and they'd all be saying the Apostles' Creed. Isn't that amazing? The gospel has penetrated every culture. It's perennially relevant. It never goes out of style. But it just keeps having success. You know, there's mountains that appear in front of it, and by faith those mountains are removed and the power of the gospel prevails. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It's not like the gospel has special receptivity only in the Western world. The gospel is growing fastest and most in places like Africa and places like South Asia. The grace of God has embraced so many people. But more than that, it has embraced such people, wicked people, ungodly people, sinful people. Last year, I met a man who had murdered three people who had been converted, lived a horrible life outside of Christ, done terrible things, unspeakable things, but the grace of God had come to him. Isn't that extraordinary? Grace of God has come to us. Remember when we looked at John 3.16, that famous verse, God so loved the world that gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. What's emphasized there is not just the scope of the world, the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world, the wickedness of the world. The grace of God has embraced so many people. It's embraced such people. The grace of God has embraced us here. This removes all grounds for boasting. We should bow our faces in the dust and thank God that He saved worms like us. Where is there room for boasting. Which of us is going to say, I, I earned my seat here. I got here because I made a series of wise choices. I did better than my neighbor. That's how I ended up here. Listen, let's get this, get this clear in our minds. We are the children of God. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are heirs of eternal life by nothing other than the sheer grace and unearned favor of God. No one deserves to be here. 
No one will be in heaven saying, didn't, didn't I do right? I'm glad my mama, my papa taught me to, to act right. We'll marvel at the grace of God. The unearned favor of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Second implication should enlarge our sense of the grace of God. Number two, this verse should give us hope in our evangelism. I hope all of us are evangelizing, sharing the gospel with the lost people in our lives. This verse teaches me that there is no one I meet with who cannot be saved. There's no one I meet with who cannot be saved. I can look anyone dead in the eyes and say to him or her, the grace of God is for you if you'll have it. If you embrace God's gracious provision in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The warrant for saying that is in this text. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all. The gospel call is for everyone. Parents, you can say this to your kids. In the last year, I had a parent and a grandparent ask me this question. Can I offer the gospel freely to my child, to my grandchild? Yes, you can and you must, because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Three-year-olds, four-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 17-year-olds can be saved. And parents, you need to be bringing that message to your kids that the grace of God is for you. Just like we sang in that song, you can come to Jesus Christ out of your sorrows, out of your sin, out of the depths of ruin untold, and you can be saved. A third and final implication, this verse should impel us to missions. This verse should impel us to missions. This verse is the missionary charter. The grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. How bright our hope should be in the missionary enterprise. The grace of God has come. The word became flesh, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. We've received grace upon grace. The grace of God has appeared in the presence of all. It's shown like a light, like an epiphany. It's dawned on the world. How hopeful should we be? in the work of missions. There are a lot of people, you'll hear this sometimes, that think, well, you really should only preach the gospel where it's shown to have taken effect already. There are people with PhDs who will say that, that, that from a sociological standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, you go to where the gospel's having lots of success and you really just focus on that. And some in those camps will, will act as though it's hopeless. Like, how on earth could we expect to penetrate the unreached people groups of the world? How's the gospel ever going to have success there, in that land, under that regime, in that community down the street, in that pocket of Winston-Salem? But this text should fill us with hope, that that teaching is all a bunch of bunk, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. The grace of God has appeared, and it is our privilege, it is our calling as the church to bring that gospel to a world that is in dire need, that the grace of God may come to them. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the spirit of that song. 
naked, helpless, foul. Our only hope of being cleansed, our only hope of being saved, our only hope of being with you at last is in the grace of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have been pleased to cause each one of us to be born in this age in which the grace of God has gone forth. Almost all of us in this room would be Gentiles, would be members of the peoples of the earth without hope and without God in the world. But we thank you that in Christ Jesus, your grace, your unearned favor has reached us. We pray that you would help us as your people to be the agents to bring that grace to reach more. We pray that you would give to us a hand in bringing the grace of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the peoples of the world, starting in our community and all over the globe. We pray that our expectations for what your grace can do, our estimation of your grace's power would be bright and would be large and would be hopeful. Perhaps all of us have people we know in our lives and we have estimated them as being too far gone. Forgive us for doing such discredit to your grace. We pray that you would refresh us and convince us again of the glorious grace of our Savior, the greatness of the gospel, and the power of your grace to save and change the peoples of the world. We pray that you would convince us afresh of the power of your grace to change us, to mold us, to shape us, to train us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.